Well, have you ever had an experience where you did something amazing, but it came to an end? You went on a vacation, maybe you even went on a retreat, and you just had an absolute blast, and then the time comes to an end, and then you have to go back to life, right? Resurgence back to life. I see a recently married couple smiling up here on the, on the front row. Oh, actually, a couple of them, actually. You go, you get married, you have the honeymoon, there's all, and then, and then life, there's going to be a point in time where the honeymoon is over, and life continues to go on. Maybe after spending several weeks, or just a couple weeks, several days, a couple weeks off work, you know, the, the thought of going back is just, uh, to some degree, dreadful. Maybe you're a student, and you've enjoyed just an amazing summer off, and summer break has just been killer, and you're just like, I don't want to go back to school, or you're a teacher. We have a few teachers in the house with us, too. The thought of, of going back and resuming school might seem discouraging. This is life, isn't it? It's life. And while in our study today, in the Gospel of Mark, imagine Peter, James, and John, after witnessing Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, they had to come down that mountain and continue with life with the, and face the realities of life. After witnessing the radiance of God's glory, after seeing uh, Christ unveil it, for them to see it on full display, it was absolutely stunning. And we learned that from Peter's response last week that he didn't want it to end, did he? He, he was coming up with a, a, a proposal to say, let me build uh, three tabernacles or, or, or dwellings so that this can just continue forever. That was his very heartbeat. He even offered to build Moses and Elijah, God's glorified servants that were present as well, to, to build them a dwelling so that they could stay. And one day soon, one day very soon, all of us who have trusted in Christ will enter into his eternal rest and spend forever with him in glory. Amen? And we eagerly anticipate that day. We look forward, we so look forward to that day. But until that point, we must press on as believers. We must continue on. And I hope to some degree after hearing that message last week on the transfiguration, as we got to consider the impact that it had on Peter's heart, that we're, we're carrying the lessons with us from that experience. That we are being prepared for God's glory. That it's going to continue to motivate us. That it's going to stir within our hearts to be obedient and magnify his name in every conceivable way that we can on this side of the cross. If you weren't here for that message, you're invited to go back online, our church website. All the sermons are recorded. You can listen to it there. Yet we must go on. We must go on. How will life and ministry continue for Peter, James, and John after the transfiguration? What sobering realities must they face while coming down the mountain? What principles can you and I apply and draw upon and keep in mind as we live out the remainder of our days for the glory of God? The title of our message is Coming Down the Mountain 
And let's read what transpires immediately after the transfiguration, starting in verse 9 of Mark chapter 9. This is what it says from the New American Standard. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. You'll notice in your outline that I have broken our passage down into two realities. And one of the challenges that we have as preachers, whenever you're, you're preaching narrative, of course the, the primary focus is to honor the authorial intent of the passage. Why God has placed it where he has placed it. Why the, the author recorded it in, in the flow of, of the context of, of the writing, the inspired writing. Another goal is that we can draw upon uh, principles that challenge our heart, that the Lord would have us take away. And so I, I believe that our out, outline is going to allow us to do both. Our sermon proposition indicates our passage reveals two realities that prove that the disciples still don't yet grasp the Messiah's destiny that we are privileged to understand. After the transfiguration, when the Lord momentarily unveiled his deity, right? He, he, he peeled back his humanity, which concealed his deity. We, we, we talked about some of the implications of, of what took place there. It helped them to see uh, the, the, the Messiah behind the man. Images of his glory have consumed their thinking, and so sobering instruction and discipleship from our Lord is going to continue to be a, tra uh, a challenge because they're hearing that he's destined to suffer. Jesus is going to have to shepherd their hearts um, from something that's called messianic triumphalism. That is, it, it, it's kind of like, I describe it this way. You know, being with the biggest, toughest kid on the playground. And, you know, that gives you a whole lot of confidence when you're a little kid. And so you feel like, yeah, with so-and-so on my side, I can pretty much do whatever I want. There's this triumphalism that they're standing with the Messiah. So when they come in, that they'll, they'll just be right in there. And that they're, to some degree, going to be able to call some shots as well. They're tempted to think that with Jesus, the Messiah, and the flesh on their side, that they're going to triumph and do whatever they want. And they're going to quickly learn that there's a big difference between being on Jesus' side versus thinking Jesus is on your side. It is the believer's responsibility, the disciple's responsibility for us to conform to his will, not for him to conform to ours. So we're instructed to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let's get started 
with the first reality, which you'll see in your outline, is this. The reality about the Messiah's death and resurrection. And it begins with our Lord's directive in verse 9, which again reads, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. The beginning of verse 9 lets us know that they were coming down the mountain. I shared last week in our study that Mount Hermon was approximately 10,000 feet tall, close to 10,000 feet. So a descent was going to give them plenty of time to talk about things on the descent. I would imagine they spent a lot of time just relishing and, and taking in the images of glory that they had seen. And they were, they were talking with the Lord all about it. And it's here where Jesus gives them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Jesus has commanded people to silence nine different times up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. These are commands to silence. And we talked about when Jesus did certain miracles and certain healings, he said, don't tell anybody. When Peter confessed, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, he turns around and he tells Peter, yes, don't tell anyone. However, this is the first conditional occurrence as Peter, James, and John will be permitted to share it at a later point after the Son of Man raises, is risen from the dead. There are a number of reasons why Jesus commanded them or could have commanded them to silence. Think about it practically. If you were one of the other nine disciples and you heard of the Peter, James, and John having this experience and you didn't get invited to tag along, there could be a little bit of envy there, couldn't there? Lord, <laughs> I would have gone with you. I, I, I would have liked to have seen that. I would have liked to have met Elijah and Moses. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. Maybe he was worried about the scribes and Pharisees overhearing uh, it and, and bringing uh, charges of blasphemy against his disciples. More than anything, it kept the timetable of our Lord's journey to the cross on point with political interruptions that would have invited the Jews to forcibly take him to make him king. Again, that whole concept of messianic triumphalism that we saw in examples of John, uh, John 6, where they, uh, after, after the loaves, right, they're going to they're gonna take them and they want more bread like that. And hey, Jesus, let's go ahead and make you king at the same time. Well, we don't know for certain. What we do know is that this caused the disciples to have a discussion especially when Jesus mentioned the Son of Man rising from the dead. Look again at verse 10. It says, They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Here's the deal. We know the disciples already struggled with the concept of the Messiah suffering and dying. We saw evidence of this when we looked at Peter's um, response, how he jumped up and started to rebuke the Lord in Mark 8, 32. And now, question, after witnessing Christ in his glory, after seeing what they, what they just saw, do you think that it got any easier to consider the Messiah suffering? 
Do you think it got any easier? I assure you that it, it most certainly did not. It was an even tougher pill to swallow. And this is why verse 10 says that they seized upon that statement. They literally fastened their thoughts to this idea of resurrection. You know how it is when you latch on to something that somebody's said earlier in your thinking and you're, you're trying to figure out um, in the process, you don't immediately comprehend it, right? But you're thinking back like, what did they say and what were they ultimately, what were they really saying, right? The, the words at face value don't reflect what, what they were communicating. I feel like I do this a lot with my wife sometimes. We do that with each other, don't we? we it's like, what were they ultimately saying? Yeah, we have to sometimes spend some time thinking about it um, and, and, and maybe even get clarification. Some things take uh, time to process, and this is one of those moments for the disciples it wasn't because they lacked understanding or weren't familiar with any concept of resurrection. The Old Testament does teach about resurrection, and Jewish theology embraced the concept. We see examples of this in John chapter 11, right, when Lazarus was dead, and Jesus waited additional time to come back. And Mary and Martha are grieved. And you'll recall you know, Jesus is going to let them know that it isn't going to end in death. And we get Martha's response in, in verse 24, I believe, of that passage where she says, hey, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection. Okay? This, this was built into Jewish theology already. They understood from passages in the book of Daniel as well that uh, you know, resurrection was a very real thing. Resurrection on the last day was a, was a very real thing. And so, the only exception would be, of course, who? The Sadducees that we learned about previously. They, they, were, they taught and vehemently denied uh, the bodily resurrection. Okay? Again, the pill that the disciples were having a hard time swallowing was this idea of a resurrected Messiah. Because this, again, involves his death. James Edwards writes, Mark's vocabulary suggests that the disciples did the disciples not simply kept the, the secret to themselves as Jesus demanded, but quashed it. They appear to misunderstand and perhaps even to resist Jesus' command. And we again imagine why. If the Son of Man is to be raised, he must first die. The disciples are unprepared for any thought that the Messiah must suffer and die before his entrance into glory. End quote. For the disciples, the idea of putting the Messiah and him dying in the same sentence, suffering and dying, is absolutely unthinkable. It was too much for them to process. Messiahs, they come to rule. They don't come to die. They, they, they come to exercise authority. And here's where we have the distinct advantage of knowing now, 2,000 years later, that dying and rising was essential to Jesus' mission. Without the cross, without the resurrection of Jesus, the place of sinners, all other works, uh, for in the place of sinners, all other works that Jesus added together would not be enough to save you think about that? All the other works that Jesus would have accomplished on our behalf, 
That still wouldn't have been enough to save you. Why? Because God's wrath wouldn't have been satisfied. The penalty wouldn't have been made. All the miracles, all the ministry, all, all of it, all of it was, was a, a, a preparation, really. All of those works were a preparation for the great final work that was going to take place. Why? Because he had to fulfill all righteousness, right? That is part of the imputed righteousness credited to our account, that he lived a life that you and I could never live. Not only that, but he died and he paid a penalty that, we, that could never be paid by us, right? These are gospel realities that we celebrate. Had he not died on the cross and risen again, he would never have been able to forgive sin and justify many. As the justifier, the 12 did not have this knowledge. Theirs was a Messiah with no cross, with no death, with no resurrection. What a blessing that we believers today get to understand all at once the full reality and implications of the gospel. We're not waiting for additional prophets to be sent. We aren't left guessing, wondering when the Messiah might come. We clearly understand his mission, and this is what allows and enables us to understand ours. Are we putting our understanding to the test? Are we putting our theology of Christ and the gospel to the test? Are we stewarding our understanding of the mysteries that were for centuries hidden from millions of people? Right? We have that understanding. Think about it. Centuries of prophecy pointing to Christ without ever seeing his coming fulfilled. Add to that 400 years of an intertestamental period where people longed to see the Messiah, but yet he did not come. And God in his grace and in his mercy has allowed you, my friend, you, to live in a time where you have complete understanding. You have total access and insight into the stewardship of the mysteries of, of God's plan of redemption. How awesome is that? How amazing is that, amen? That, our church, amen, that has to stir our hearts. That has to capture our thinking. Because if it doesn't, you want to know what? We should have just lived back in, in another time where we were just left guessing. And to be honest with you, I think it would have been much harder to be an Israelite trying to witness during their time period than it is for us in our dispensation. Wait, let me get this right. Your whole religion centers around someone that isn't even here yet? You're waiting for them to arrive? You, you don't know when they're coming. You have no idea what he looks like. Good luck with that. You, you, you can have that. Christians, we know. Believers, we, we understand. We see who he is. We know exactly who he is. We know why he came. We know when he came. We know the purpose for which he came. We know what our responsibility is. As believers, and just think about the stewardship of God's grace in your life through the lens of that reality for just a moment. 
are you and I going to treat that grace with indifference? Or are we going to steward our gospel understanding and put it to the test? God's word says it's the power of God to salvation. Those mysteries and the culmination of everything, it is the power of God to salvation. We have that ministry of reconciliation that's described so vividly for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and that's why Paul wrote, (laughs) that's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned that chapter to say, you as an ambassador of God, are you going to beg? Are you going to plead with people on this earth, be reconciled with God. Be reconciled with God. I got a phone call just this week sharing that um, one of my sisters who's been married for over 25 years that her and her husband are filing for divorce. have another sister who's already been divorced. Right. And it seems that the Lord, with my first sister who was divorced, used that in great measure, brought her to a Bible-based church, had a conversation with her, and that she even said that there was a point in time where she, um, she surrendered to the Lord during that time. But it's just where my heart is. It was... It was heavy this week. It's been heavy the last couple weeks. Right? But there's forgiveness, right? There's repentance. There's reconciliation. There's hope. We have it. We have it at our access. It's right there for us. And not only is it ministering to our own hearts, but it provides everything as the way of the transgressor is hard in this life. And this world will chew you up and spit you out. And if you're an unbeliever here today, if you are living a life without Christ, I've shared this before, that a Christless life is a crisis life. A Christless marriage is a crisis marriage. It's just a matter of time. Everything, and it's by divine design, you will see that you won't be able to find your contentment in anything else. The Lord would call you to repent. The Lord would call you to turn and trust with all of your heart, placing your faith in him for forgiveness of your sins. And if you ask, he will forgive you. If you will follow, he will lead you. And he will do that. Every believer that has been following the Lord in this church for a number of years will tell you his faithfulness is unparalleled. It's absolutely unparalleled. Well, perhaps our hearts will be even more encouraged to steward what has been entrusted to us as we consider the second reality. We're looking at two realities that prove the disciples still don't yet grasp the Messiah's destiny that we are privileged to understand. The first reality was about the Messiah's death and resurrection. The second is this, the reality about Elijah's arrival. Here we're going to cover the disciples' question, and then we'll go to our Lord's explanation. Notice their question in verse 11. They asked him saying, why is it that Christ, or excuse me, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah 
must come first. This is more than a strategic effort on the disciples' part to change the subject. True, the Messiah's death is painful to think about. It's like one of your close friends just sharing that they're terminal with cancer. And, and the subject's so emotionally painful, you're like, oh, okay, let's talk about this. I'm not quite ready for that. But here the disciples' question also wasn't without purpose. Why this question and why now? As we'll see, this was an attempt on their part to reconcile the reality that Jesus was describing with their false understanding and false expectations of the Messiah. In essence, their desire wasn't to talk about death. They wanted to go back to focusing on glory, like they just witnessed, right? Who did they just see? They just saw Moses and Elijah on the mount with them, right? Hey, let's, I have, here's a thought. Let's ask him a question about Elijah. Let's shift gears back to glory a little bit. As John MacArthur shared, they had glory on the brain, end quote. Let's talk about Elijah, who we just saw with Moses at the transfiguration. Why do the scribes say that he must come first? And this is a setup question intending to suggest that Elijah's return to restore all things might obviate the need for Jesus to go to the cross and suffer. The scribe's reference is linked to prophecies in the book of Malachi. In Malachi 3.1, the Lord says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me. Who would this messenger be? Later in Malachi 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Of course, there are other messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But there is a reason that the scribes fasten this, this one, uh, fasten themselves to this. And this was, this was common just even as it related to kings. Um, there was always a herald. There was always a forerunner. There was always somebody who went ahead into the town to let you know that the king was on his way. The king is coming. And so it would make sense if you're the scribes and you're looking through the lens of Malachi 4, 5, and yeah, there are all these other scriptures we know that point to the Messiah coming, but this one specifically says there's going to be somebody who's going to give us a heads up. Let's, let's focus on that. And to some degree, um, there were some uh, scribes and Pharisees who were more focused on Elijah coming than they were the Messiah. Why? Because they were going to have the heads up. So now we have some context to their, their question here in verse 10. The disciples just saw Elijah with Moses at the transfiguration, right? So in their minds, they're trying to harmonize the scribes' interpretation of Malachi's prophecy with the fact that they just saw Elijah in glory. So maybe this whole cross thing doesn't need to take place. Maybe we can just get this glory thing started right now, okay? He's there. Let's, let's not talk about that. And Peter, James, and John without question, are absolutely convinced that 
Jesus is the Messiah. This was authenticated by Peter's confession, and even the Lord, excuse me, authenticates Peter's confession when he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was revealed by my heavenly Father, right? Not by, not by man, not by uh, flesh and blood, okay? It's been authenticated. They have seen Jesus transfigured in glory. They've seen the Messiah's radiance. They have heard a direct testimony of God the Father when he said, this is my beloved son. And we saw that just in Mark 9, verse 7. But now the Father's command, listen to him, has immediate and critical implications. This isn't just a generic command. There's a general principle that believers can draw upon it from today, that we do need to listen to Christ. We need to hear his voice. But as it relates to the context and what we're studying, this is a very pointed command for Peter, James, and John. God the Father is saying that if you will listen to Jesus, he will connect the dots for you. There's a bigger redemptive picture and plan that you don't understand. Listen to what he says about Elijah. Listen to what he has to say about the Messiah's death and resurrection. And so naturally, this brings us to our Lord's explanation in verses 12 and 13. Now, when you've read this, and you can read it a dozen times, had that privilege this past week or more. And there's almost this cryptic, um, hidden, it, it feels that way, doesn't it, when you read it? Like this meaning, like, what is really going on here? And I was, I was eager to study it, and little, little did I know just how challenging it was going to be. But I believe that the Lord has allowed me to get my arms around it and to bless you with understanding. It gives us an impression and the reason that it does is because it speaks to past, present, and, and future realities. Okay? Specifically, the fulfillment of past, present, and future realities. And they're not in chronological order. In fact, our Lord's explanation is in reverse order chronologically. And you'll notice this reflected in the second set of subpoints in your outline. It starts with the future reality, the pre- and then goes to the present reality, and then past realities. Let's start with the future reality, which is a reality that is still waiting fulfillment. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Here's where our Lord explains, Elijah does first come and restore all things. This is the Lord affirming the accuracy of Malachi 4.5, and it's pointing to Christ's second coming, not his first. Okay? That's, that, that's the, the first part in his response. And to understand the significance of this future reality, it helps if you have a basic grasp of eschatology. And you'll notice under the reality in the bulletin, is there a little bit of an over, is there an, um, a bracketed um, view? Uh, so it says uh, church age. It starts with church age right there. That's currently the time that we're living in right now. We're, we're living in the church age. What is the next major event that's going to take place in the church age? It is the ra- rapture. Yeah, okay. Somebody said tribulation. I was like, okay, we gotta get, this might, might, might take us a little longer than we think. No, no, it is the rapture of the church. 
The church will be raptured. And this is going to inaugurate the beginning of, of seven years of God's judgment being poured out of, upon the earth, right? You tracking with me? It is during that time of judgment that Elijah will come and restore all things. And track with me, because Malachi 4.5, it refers to it as a great and terrible day of the Lord. It will be terrible in the sense that there will be judgment for seven years uh, progressively being poured out on, on this earth, right? It's going to be terrible. There'll be great, it will be fearful, it will be absolutely frightening. The church will be gone. The common grace of, the, of believers spilling over into the lives of unbelievers will be totally removed. God is just going to pour out his wrath, right? Frightening, a terrible day. But it's also going to be a great day. Why? Because when it comes to, there's going to come to a place at the end where there's going to be a restoration of Israel and the Lord is going to return and he is going to sit on the Davidic throne and he is going to rule. Amen? Right? And that is, that is a great day. Couldn't be any more specific. It, it's going to be unbelievable when he does that. So when we're talking about, when Jesus is, 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 is sharing this first reality, he's, he's helping them to see that Malachi 4.5 is still intact. So there's a little bit of an advantage that we have that the scribes and disciples during this time don't have. We have a complete canon of scripture, right? We have the big picture. We know what, what's going on, and they didn't have this. And so they're having to view things through the lens of, of, of the scriptures that they have, and, and the concept of there being a first and second advent is a total disconnect. They're like, wait a minute, there's more than one coming? You know, it's like, well, how, how? they don't see it mapped out like we do. It's one of the blessings that we have of, of living in the age that we live. And so when, if you're somebody, I wanted to put that eschatology in there too because some of you might be curious and it's good just to have that framework settled in your, your thinking. I'm not going to chase that, rabbit, go off on that rabbit trail right now, but just to be able to review that and, and know what to anticipate is, is coming from, from an eschatological viewpoint. With good hermeneutics and faithful study of God's word, it can be clearly understood. And they didn't have our privileges. And this is why they needed to listen to Jesus, just as the Father exhorted them. He, he'll put it together for you. He'll, he'll help you understand. And we only have what's recorded here in this conversation, right? But we can be certain, do you think that they had more follow-up questions with the Lord and had time and he was continuing to try to help them understand? Of course he was. Well, next, Jesus explains a second reality, which at this time um, was present, or it might be better, I was debating whether to put it in as present or imminent reality, right? Um, you can actually even write that over present, imminent reality. He continues by asking, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
His question is basically exposing them and letting them know that their timing is off and that they don't understand or connect the other prophecies where the Son of Man would suffer before returning in glory. The glory of the kingdom is coming. But Jesus is letting them know that it's not going to be on the rabbinic or scribal uh, timetable that they understand through the, through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures, okay? He's trying to help them. He was, Jesus was also pointing out that the prophecies about Elijah in no way precluded the suffering and death of Messiah because that also was something that was predicted in the Old Testament. The most notable examples, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, familiar text for us. So here they're concerned about Elijah's prophecy fitting in, and Jesus moves them to a much weightier, a much more pressing prophecy regarding his own suffering. The glory of the coming kingdom was contingent on the glory of the cross and resurrection. And again, this is first floor theology for us. We, we get this. This is like, oh yeah, we totally understand. But can you imagine what it was like for the disciples during this time? I mean, they had to cling to Jesus. They had to be asking him to find out the, the answers and, and, and to put this, put this all together. It's easy for us just to sit back here you know, and, and look, at, look at their understanding and say, well, man, why, why, why don't they get it? I mean, it's, it's pretty clear for us, right? Well, it might be a wrap if our Lord's explanation concluded at this point, but there are the past realities of verse 13 that also require our attention very quickly. Look at verse 13. Jesus concludes by saying, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This verse is pointing to past realities. And notice the past tense verbs that are used. Elijah has come. They did whatever they wished. And Jesus is covering two bases here. First, as it is written, can only be referencing of the great prophet Elijah, who was written about in the Old Testament. Elijah, you'll recall, had barely escaped with his life, back in 1 Kings chapter 9, I put a couple verses in the outline for you, for, or excuse me, 19, 1 Kings 19, uh, verses 2 and 10. And the only reason that Elijah escaped with his life was why? We read the account in 2 Kings chapter 2. God sends a chariot, right? Captures him and in a whirlwind takes him to heaven. It's here where John MacArthur adds, no specific Old Testament prophecies predicted that the Messiah's forerunner would die. Therefore, this statement is best understood as having been fulfilled typically. The fate intended for Elijah in 1 Kings 19.2 and 10, had, and he references those verses as well, had befallen on John the Baptist. And this is the second base the second base that the past realities which our Lord affirms in Matthew 17, verses 11 through 13. And I'll read those quickly because our time is dwindling. Matthew 17, if you want to turn there, verses 11 through 13. It says this, actually starting in verse 10. And his disciples asked him, and this is the parallel account, okay? 
Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Basically the same thing as in Mark's account. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now check out verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay, so there we have it. Um, a, a, a picture, right? We know that Elijah, who I believe with full conviction is going to be the one who comes back and restores all things, and his return will be during the tribulation. And then we have John the Baptist, who you've heard this before, functioned in, in the spirit of Elijah, right? He, he suffered the, the, the fate of of what would have been intended for Elijah. So they call this a type, like a type of Christ. Jonah, a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Spent three days in the belly of, of the great fish, symbolic of Christ being spending three days in the tomb. This is, this is a typology. Okay, James Edwards shares this concluding thought about Elijah. And in reference to the verse, they have done to Elijah everything they wished. That phrase must have resonated with Mark's first audience, which itself was subjected to the savageries of Nero's persecution. It resonates today with the persecuted church in various parts of the world. Whenever Christians follow Jesus on the way of the cross, they find themselves exposed to the world and vulnerable to its crafty schemes. The inevitable suffering that results in discipleship to Jesus is not a sign of abandonment by God, however, but of fellowship. And he he references Philippians 3.10, that that verse that helps us to understand that we're part of the fellowship of his sufferings. With the Son of Man, he finishes, who must suffer much and be rejected. So in time, the twelve would see firsthand the cost that the Messiah would pay and their foreshadowed fate is also seen through what happens uh, to, to John the Baptist. Well, I don't know about you, but I can think of no better way to celebrate our understanding of these two realities and the privilege that we have to, to, to know the gospel, the full extent of the gospel, than to celebrate the Lord's table together as a church family. How wonderful is that provision from the Lord? So what I'm going to do is close our time in prayer. I'll invite the worship team to come up as um, as I'm praying, and then we'll offer some additional instructions just as it relates to communion. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we bow our heads, truly wanting to praise your name and give you thanks and praise for allowing us to have the understanding that so many that lived before us longed to know. They longed to know who the Christ was. We know that it was Jesus, your son, born of a virgin, who left heaven, the incarnate one who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who left the comforts, the praise, and the glory of heaven to come to this earth to minister to us and to fulfill your will. Father, my heart is encouraged that you 
have allowed us to live during a, a time period where these realities are fully understood. Thank you for that. We praise you for that. We ask that you would help us to steward our understanding of these realities so that we can minister on your behalf. We know that in time, the disciples would understand. And we know now, as they're in your presence, they have greater understanding and understanding that we even look forward to someday as well. Until that time, encourage us. Encourage us with their perseverance as they they clung to the words of your son, as they walked with him, as they grew as they sought answers from him. If there's ever times where we have questions in our theology, where we want to understand something that we don't understand, may we come to your word. May we also listen to him and get a clearer understanding. We thank you for this time as a church family to rally around your word of truth. We give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to go ahead and celebrate communion. And before we do, if you're a guest with us today and perhaps you got invited and, and you, you haven't expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a celebration for believers.